from my office in Burbank, California. My name is Alex, and this is At The Cinema for the weekend of March. Oh, shit. the show it's actually april 3rd 2020 that is the weekend for this episode of at the cinema so welcome back if you're a returning listener we're on the third week of california shelter in place orders i'm not too sure about other states um, but this is only the second week of the podcast so i hope we can still celebrate things that are born out of this time um, or created out of this time that's not just children I'm back with a few more movies that I saw this week that you can find on streaming services between Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime. Those are like the major three. I don't really do Disney Plus. I'm not a Disney person. So you're probably never going to find me talking about um, many Disney movies unless it's like Pixar, Disney, Disney, Pixar. Just so you know. The first film that we're going to talk about today is an oldie, but many people will call it a goldie. I have never seen this film until earlier this week, and that is the original Carrie from 1976. This is something that you can find on Amazon Prime. So this was a great movie. I did have one major problem with it, which we'll get into pretty early, but otherwise, I mean, this is Brian De Palma. If you don't know Brian De Palma, like, this is a movie that gave him his name in Hollywood. He takes this simple story of a really put upon, shy, extremely controlled by her mother, teenage girl. She's just coming onto the cusp of womanhood at the beginning of this movie. This is a story that was a novel. This was Stephen King, you know, small time dude at the time. This was his first book and he just exploded onto the scene with Carrie, and it's really interesting because I find that if a man like Stephen King wrote a book like Carrie that was published in today's times, a lot of people would have a problem with that. I feel like with the kind of issues, like you know, the first scene's pretty famous of Carrie, she's bullied by all the girls in her class and gym class because her period starts while she's in the shower and she doesn't know what the hell that is. I mean, she's never been taught because her mother's crazy. She's never been taught the intricacies of growing up, especially sexual maturity and everything. So she just like freaks out and all the girls are making fun of her and like throwing tampons at her. I mean, that's the beginning of the book as well. So this is early 1970s when Stephen King is writing this. And it's famous, like the story he tells about it. It's kind of, I guess, well known if you follow Saving King at all. His wife, she was giving him kind of pointers in writing it like she saved the manuscript from the trash because he thought it wasn't good enough and like read it read that first scene about Carrie having her period for the first time and she's like man there's something here Steve you should keep writing on it and maybe you change this thing or that thing and boom Carrie overnight success so I feel like a lot of people today and kind of in this climate this social climate a lot of people would say oh man a early 20 year old guy writing a story about a girl having her period for the first time that's weird and while the story does go off into a much more Stephen King direction here's where let me back up you can enjoy Carrie the book and you can enjoy Carrie the film 
I think, for completely different reasons. Me personally, I read the book. I didn't really find it to be all that super compelling. Like, I've always just kind of generally known the story of Carrie just because it's so ingrained in like pop culture. So I guess there really were, weren't any surprises for me when I was experiencing the story for the first time through Stephen King's novel. However, the way that Stephen King and Brian De Palma tell this story, they greatly differ so you kind of get the best kind of adaptation. What Brian De Palma takes out of the beginning of Carrie, the novel, is womanhood, essentially growing up. Like this is, in a sense, a really messed up coming of age story because Carrie is living a life that's not so dissimilar to stories of say, now this is not a tonal comparison, but Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, where you have somebody living in a really, really sheltered community for a very long time and then coming out of it and just kind of experiencing culture shock. Carrie is living a life like that in this film because her mother, she is extremely religious. However, an interesting fact that I learned about her character afterwards, any like Bible passage that she quotes in the film, none of them are real. She's like taking ad libs Christianity like the buzzwords, the fire and brimstone, basically, and kind of turning that into a whole anti-sexuality tirade. Like her religion is really, really focused on like preserving some sort of sanctity of being female. It's kind of like a twisted feminism in that men are not needed, men are not necessary for survival, and it's more avoidance here the way the mother talks about it, then feminism is, but it's definitely kind of shares some of this twisted feminist ideology. And Carrie's not super receptive to it because she's definitely captive. She's like a little bird. She's frail and she's just subject to a lot of abuse. Carrie's mother uses her so-called religion as a method of abuse. Like she doesn't come at it from a rational minded point of view. She locks Carrie in a closet and she forces her to pray and Carrie hates it. So naturally Carrie doesn't have a whole lot of social interaction with people even though she does go to public school and everybody is really, they just pile on her, the whole movie. The editing of this movie is really funny because Brian De Palma, like he just really likes to just smash cut a scene from one into the next, just right on the end of a line that just kind of acts like a punchline. Like the very first scene is this really cool crane shot, comes over a volleyball court, Carrie and all the girls in her gym class are playing volleyball. Carrie's in the server's position and she misses hitting the ball back and they lose the game, I guess, immediately. That must have been match point. And her entire team is all mad at her and they all just file past her and they're just kind of pushing her around, just being like, you suck, you suck, Carrie. And then just one girl comes up to her and says, eat shit. And it's just a bam, smash cut into the next scene. Brandon Palmer does that a lot of times in the film. And it kind of lends this unintentional, it's definitely intentional, this intentional sense of humor throughout the movie that um, is funny and also kind of uncomfortable in the way you find it funny because a lot of the other characters in this movie are horrible like there's two villains in Carrie's world there's her mother there's that whole can of worms and then there are all of her classmates who are really really nasty to her as you probably know but it's not just the famous prom scene that happens to Carrie in this movie people are just really really nasty to her throughout the movie so it just sets this 
I mean, it's just character development of, of these other teenagers that don't like Carrie. So when you, a lot of people talk about this movie, they talk about the prom scene because it's a work of art. And I'm not going to spoil the story if you don't really know the story of Carrie. But like I said, it's pretty well known. And I just, I, I kind of experienced it through osmosis by watching or reading other things before I ever got around to even reading the book. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing because Carrie's marketing, a lot of it, I mean, I'm looking at the original poster right now and you have the prom scene, you have the joke that's played on her right there on the poster. Like everybody knows what she does, but it's, I guess what really makes this movie work in spite of that marketing is the fact that it's still really compelling and scary while you're watching it build up to what you already know is going to happen. Stephen King did not write this movie this way. Stephen King's version of the story in the book is told completely secondhand, basically. It's like an assemblage of articles about the aftermath of Carrie's stuff or like backstory articles at like color some sort of context of what's currently going on and also like interviews of people who survived her rampage and it's really interesting and I think that's why I don't really like the book as much as I like the movie because it's kind of bloodless while it's scary and Stephen King doesn't really shy away from being gruesome it's kind of bloodless in the way that it already happened it's not necessarily scary to look back on the past because most of the time you never ever cross paths with this event it doesn't affect your life it's just a footnote in history that's crazy that it happened but it happened a long time ago it doesn't affect your present it doesn't really have any scary power but when you're watching carry the film you're building up to it you still there's still a lot of tension but there's also a lot of humor in it too it's just a really delicate balance like Lawrence Cohen who wrote the screenplay he did a really good job but also Brian De Palma and his editorial choices they just did a really good job in just balancing the tone in this movie and credit to Lawrence Cohen he never wastes any characters nothing feels wasted and nothing feels like we needed more characters to help fill and make this setting feel believable so I love the writing in that way. Carrie is just really tight. It has a great sense of pacing and it really is killer. The ending is pretty awesome. However, my major complaint with this film is it's just it just comes from the sense that you just get this dirty old man feel when you're watching the film. Like so there's the very first scene in the film where Carrie misses the volleyball hit and the girl tells her to eat shit that smash cut goes straight into the girl's locker room and it's just like this tracking shot the dolly going horizontally from left to right just scanning all the rows in slow motion of the girl's locker room they're all messing with each other they're naked they're half naked there's just a lot of flesh and these are like really young girls in the context of the story like carrie's supposed to be like 16 years old which I believe is still kind of late in terms of getting your period for the first time. So if you choose to believe she's even younger, it's just kind of uncomfortable. The film goes a lot farther, especially when it gets to Carrie actually taking the shower. Like, Sissy Spacek is just going full nude in it. And I'm supposed to believe that she's like 15 or 16. And the camera's lens is just really... The term is like male gaze, but it's it's just really like framing all of her sexualized parts. And just like in slow motion, she's like rub, she's all wet and she's like covering herself in water and everything. It's just kind of uncomfortable. I think it's a really cool shot in theory. 
The way it's pulled off, technically, is very impressive. The soundtrack in this movie is really excellent, actually. I need to get it and download it. Everything, I mean, the way Brian De Palma makes his movies, is he's very meticulous. Brian De Palma is very meticulous in the way that he juggles what you're actually seeing when he uses his, like, patented split screens or which shots he's going to use as a track and then a zoom or zooming out and then we're tracking like he does these crazy things and he does these really cool sweeping crane shots and stuff too but when he needs to settle the camera down he settles it down he's really meticulous i guess in his shot selection which i really appreciate so everything technically about the sequence is really cool but just the context of it i'm just split on it because it like gives me a decent idea of who these girls are like they're boisterous they're loud whatever they're teenagers and then they're also really mean by the end of the scene, they're all really, really mean. I just feel like the camera got a little too excited. Like it wants you to be excited. It wants you to appreciate Carrie's body at first before you like uh, like know who she is as a character. And it's just uncomfortable. It's not the only example of just of this movie just kind of being overtly sexual in kind of the wrong ways. Because a major, major theme of this movie is sexuality whether it's right or wrong, especially like teenage sexuality. But I feel like there's a way to handle that because you're setting the context of these are minors. And I'm supposed to, it's not even that they're having sex with each other. They're just naked. Like, it, and, and the camera feels, it just makes, the camera makes me feel like I have to appreciate that in the way that I would if I like that sort of thing. I just don't, it just makes me uncomfortable. I feel like he could have, portrayed this stuff and gave us the same amount of information in a different way in a way that doesn't exploit these girls quite as much as it does it's not a deal breaker for me i still think this is a really great movie and thankfully there's not that many shots like that but it's enough i mean that beginning scene that title sequence is iconic i believe i think people like that a lot you know it I'm just juggling a lot of feelings on it. You should watch Carrie. It's a really great movie. You can find it on Amazon Prime. Check it out. The next film I am going to talk about is another 2020 release. This is another Netflix film. This one starring Alison Brie. She's a great actor. It's called Horse Girl. Now, this is directed by Jeff Baina. I believe I'm saying his name right. He's got some sort of a classical style. Like, he's got a really, like, dry, classical, directorial style, which I believe he uses as an aspect of humor. His movies are supposed to be funny. I say they're supposed to be. I don't really like his movies. I've seen a few of them. I've seen uh, Life After Beth, and I watched The Little Hours earlier this year. I thought both of those were not great. Um, However, with the exception of Life After Beth, because I don't think the production design or the way that was shot was really special, the little hours kind of showed a a jump in craft, I guess. The shot selection was a lot more thoughtful, I think. And I think, like, I really like the look of the movie. I think the color is really good. And I like the aesthetic. I like the whole idea. But it's also trying to be like a raunchy comedy. And it just never lands. And I think that has to do with the way, how dry he makes his movies. They're not like dry, dry. They're not like Yorgos Lanthimos dry. They're just like raunchy comedy with a dry punchline, I guess. And if that sounds like your thing, then you'll probably love these movies. You'll probably love The Little Hours. But it's just not for me. It's just not for me. So, But I still want to catch everything he does in this movie with Alison Brie, who is a returning force 
with Jeff Baina. She was in The Little Hours, and now she actually co-wrote this movie. So this is a story that Alison Brie wanted to tell, and she co-wrote it with Jeff. I was expecting more Jeff Baina in this, but even though the trailer makes it feel like a little more of a supernatural thriller than a comedy. Like, there's not really much comedy in this movie. It still has that dry style, but it works a lot better in this movie, I think. Um, and the beginning of this movie is actually, it's pretty good. Like, I was pretty on board with it. I was like, wow, Jeff, you really stepped it up this time. I really think the reason why I like this movie a lot better than this other stuff is that Alison Brie did actually write this. I think I can feel a lot of her in this movie because you can tell that this role is really close to her. She definitely, from the poster, the poster is just this really zoomed in shot of Alison Brie just kind of staring off into nothing. I mean, you just know that she spent a long time perfecting that look in the mirror. It feels like Alison Brie was kind of born play this role she's really kind of giving herself her own niche in Hollywood of playing like plain Jane characters who they're not quirky but they have interests and they're actually really layered emotionally and you know they're just as worth any other person on earth you just got to get to know who they are she plays kind of the same character not to this extent here in horse girl but she kind of plays a, a version of this horse girl character in her Netflix TV show Glow, which has been on a few years, and that's a great show. Horse Girl is not so much a comedy. It has some dry humor here and there, but it's something that comes on as kind of sad-ish, but also kind of cute at the same time. Like, it has a, has a real, like, heartwarminess in the first act of the film because you're watching Alison Brie's character. Uh, she doesn't really have any friends. She works at a craft shop. She's quiet. She doesn't really speak up for herself. She's got a roommate who just looks like she likes to go out and party every Saturday night. And so does her boyfriend. She just is living kind of with these opposites who are sweet and they like encourage her to come out of her shell and meet people kind of in a surprisingly sweet way. I feel like other movies would write these roommates to be really shitty in how they treat Sarah which is Alison Brie's character's name. But Sarah's roommate, she's like, Sarah, you should go out. It's only 8.30. You should go meet my boyfriend's roommate. He's cool. You know, we should actually do something for your birthday. That's a scene in the film. Sarah was just going to sit and make more crafts and watch her favorite TV show and uh, just spend a birthday alone. And you know, I can vibe with that. I've done that before. I've spent a birthday alone. It's whatever. It's kind of bittersweet. But her roommate's like, nah, you should meet you should meet this guy. This guy comes over. There's kind of a really, the start of like a really cute romance between these two. And it's just like kind of a feel-good movie. And I, at this point, I know that there's supposed to be some weird elements creeping in to her, but we're just not there yet. It's maybe like 30 minutes into the movie. I feel like what threw a lot of people off on this movie was just how weird the movie got. And it's not that weird movies are bad, but movies that are weird and take too little of a stance on what the weirdness means are movies that people don't like. I mean, this is not a bad movie. I like this movie a little bit. Like, on my scale, it gets like a decent 6 out of 10. And that has a lot to do with the second half of this film just kind of breaking itself apart into weirder and weirder pieces, which is something I'm totally on board with. However, it's one of those movies that feels intentionally impenetrable. There are weird movies out there that you know what they're talking about. You know the major themes in the movie. You know what weird things within the film mean, or you can interpret that. Here in Horse Girl, I don't really feel like I can interpret much of the weirdness in the film, simply because I'm not really given a whole lot of context 
to what Allison Brie is struggling with. She begins having weird dreams, seeing people in her dreams she's never seen before, but those people like live in her town. And it's just becoming really apparent that Allison Brie feels like aliens are messing with her brain. She's waking up in weird places. She's doing weird shit, and it's kind of driving her nuts. Meanwhile, she's trying to juggle this new life with a new boy working at a craft store still, and she's trying to juggle having her life in the sky with these increasingly intrusive distractions, mental distractions, blocks of time that she doesn't remember. It's a movie, it's a definitely like a questioning your sanity kind of film. Why is it that Alison Brie thinks she's being messed with by aliens? Like, what subtextual link does that create with an aspect of her personality or her psyche that we can diagnose like do i feel like i know allison brie wanted to be a better person in this film do i know that her character wanted to actually wanted to have a boyfriend i don't know that sometimes i feel like in the movie she's just kind of pushed along a lot She's pushed along by external forces constantly in the film. And it's hard to find portions of it where she makes decisions on her own. Because there's a moment in the movie where we just go from zero to like 100 really quickly. And we're missing a lot of scenes in between or scenes before that point that would more clearly lay out what it is she feels like she has to do. I can't really find meaning in the movie. I know it has meaning. It definitely has meaning to Alison Brie, but I just don't feel like it was written in a way that really conveys that to the audience. It's not so much a bad thing. I don't really draw any conclusions at the end of this film. It gets to its weirdest point, and it ends, and it's over. It's a pretty good movie. Definitely worth an hour and 43 minutes of your time, but I just know that there are a lot of people who saw this and they came to the same conclusion at the end of the movie that said, why well, I can't interpret any of this, therefore it sucks. And I don't know, I kind of hate that mindset, but I also understand it at the same time because I don't really feel like I know what it's talking about. Maybe if I watch it again, yeah, I could, but the scenes themselves or what literally happens in the film aren't that entertaining to me to where I feel like I would want to sit through it again if I wanted to go to deeper meaning because I just don't really feel like there was a super great conveyance of said meaning. You can find Horse Girl on Netflix because it is a Netflix film. Check it out. The final film we're going to talk about here. This is the most recent movie I watched. I watched this last night. This is a Hulu original. It is a documentary. It is called Minding the Gap. This is a really interesting documentary, not only in what it is, because it's really interesting, of course, but the way it was made, I think is also really interesting too. And there's, I, I connected to this movie a lot simply because of the way I grew up. Let me just, let's just get into it. So there's a group of skaters in Rockton. I think it's Rockton, Illinois. This is a town we talked about this in all the bright places last week, but Rockton or Rockford, I think it's Rockford, Rockford, Illinois. The, this town sucks. It has high unemployment. It's got violence. It's one of the most violent like places in America. And it's just not a super great place to make your life, obviously. There's a lot of really old, nice, like structurally nice looking, but run down houses, like ones that one of the men in this documentary are renting at the beginning of it. It just reminds me a lot of my hometown 
there are sections of it where, I mean, the houses are old because people moved there, built those houses a long time ago, back when the town was booming. But once it took its own economic downturn, these houses, they don't get taken care of anymore. And people with lower and lower income rent them for less and less. And there's just kind of less of, a, of an incentive to keep it good, to keep it historical to keep the property value high these these houses kind of look the same but they're not carbon copies of each other they're just all slight variations on each other and i really like it but it's i also feel like in rundown towns you see those kinds of houses as the ones in states of disrepair and i remember my city tearing down houses exactly like that just a condemned homes. I used to work for the government public access TV channel, so I saw a video of that. I think I edited together like a montage of a house getting demolished once. So all these dudes are skaters. They've been skaters for many years at this point. Like, they're adults uh, with the exception of Kier. He's um, he's like, well, he's basically an adult. He think he turns 18 pretty early on into the documentary. I mean, this is, these are all real dudes. The guy behind the camera, he's just part of this friend group. You got Zach, you got Kier, and then you have the dude behind the camera, Bing. He's like the cameraman. You know, in skate video compilations, which are really great pieces of art, you got the like the fisheye lens, super wide angle of like dudes just like ripping pipes and stuff, uh, doing cool skate tricks um, to a beat, to a wicked track. They can be edited really cool. I mean, if you love skateboarding, you'll love the aesthetic of this film and I really connect to it because like I said my hometown in bits and pieces kind of looks a lot like rundown Rockford Illinois and the kinds of dudes and girls too in one way they kind of get left behind but also they're just living in the town that they grew up in and they're there for various different reasons but I, I guess chief among those reasons is that they don't have the education or the money necessary to get higher education so you just stay behind and you got to take what jobs you can to get ahead i mean you have to start your life but a lot of people are kind of disadvantaged by their income level because they just don't have money to go to school um they don't even have money to borrow money to go to school even or maybe they didn't want to go to school or in zach's case he he dropped out of school when he was like 16 before he was even 16 like i don't even know how that's possible <laughs> But uh, I mean, he's like a he's like in his twenties, maybe mid twenties in this documentary, and really early on, he's trying to get his GED. And there's this kind of attitude that develops of people who their education didn't get completed for one reason or another. They're just working like labor jobs or low wage jobs because it's all they can get. I've really seen this kind of attitude from people in my hometown that shame becomes less and less of a thing. Like Zach is not ashamed that he's being filmed for millions of people to see trying to get his GED. And then he walks out of the GED place and he's like, boy, that was rough. I don't know what they wanted me to do on that thing. Like I would be I would never want to portray myself like that if I were like that. Like, say I have the self-awareness today, but I'm uneducated. I feel like I wouldn't want to portray myself like that on a documentary that you can just go on Hulu and watch. Zach doesn't really have a whole lot of shame, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But that is totally an attitude of, of people who don't have a lot in life. So Zach, he's going to be a dad with his girlfriend, Nina, and they just have to figure out how to raise this baby. They're really young. I think Nina's like 21. 
and she's like wanting to go out to bars and stuff, but she's a mother and they're just working their dead end jobs to make ends meet. But Zach wants to skate and being the cameraman, he skates. Kier, he's a friend of them. They've all known each other for years. They skate. Kier's trying to figure out what to do with his life. He just turned 18. He's obviously not, go- obviously not going to college. What's going on with these dudes? In a way, we're following them through maybe two or three years, the course of this documentary. But what really makes it interesting beyond the fact that it's about skateboarding and I think skateboarding's cool even though I suck at it and also the setting of the movie is something I can really connect with for better or for worse I mean all of these guys Bing, Kier, and Zach have had horrible father figures in their lives well maybe not not so much in Zach's case Zach was a case of being a rebellious and a runaway. I wouldn't call that horrible parenting, but Zach seems to think that his dad just kind of didn't really listen to him, I guess. But he wasn't really abused in the way that Bing was abused and abandoned and Kier was abused. And that abuse led to his own abandonment of his own father. And it's really tragic to see the ways people either find a way to not so much justify but accept things that have been done to them by other people. Like in Kier's case, his dad beat him, and he kind of hated his dad. But he talks about his father with reverence. He loves his dad. His dad had passed away years prior, and at the end of the movie, he's trying to find his father's grave because he hadn't seen it since his father was buried there, which was years, years ago at this point. He's just, he loves his dad, but he also acknowledges what his dad did to him and how that might have affected him. It definitely, in Kier's case, I mean, he's a big sweetheart. Like, I think it definitely affected him in the way that he knows how he shouldn't act towards other people. But, like, I mean, being, he's been filming these guys skate for so long. He's got footage of Kier as, like, a 12-year-old, like, six years prior, getting in fights at the skate park and stuff. You know he had to really figure himself out at some point. So he did a lot of growing up before the documentary, and in the documentary, he's still doing a ton of growing up. And it's just really interesting to watch these guys examine why they feel the way they feel. Like, Zach's a total alcoholic. But he explains to you why in the movie. Spoiler alert, it has to do with like the lack of like a connection to family. It's pretty crazy. I know so many people like Zach in this documentary. It's just really weird to be living a life that society says that you should be living, which is the go to college and like, I mean, they just tell you to go to college. They don't tell you what to do afterwards. I'm living a completely different life than these people are living in this time in the documentary. Like I'm not a young father. I'm not really, really grappling for employment. Like obviously I'm trying to get employed in my industry, but I'm not like these guys where it's like, I'll take literally any job I can get because there's so few. And the things that does to you mentally, I mean, low income people, they just get worn down over time. I'm just living paycheck to paycheck. At the beginning of this documentary, it just doesn't look good. And it's really interesting to see them really probe themselves really openly for this documentary. Bing gets so much access in the film to like all aspects of this people's lives. And I was like, at first I was like, man, like people must just love Bing in this town. And I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised, but I mean, he's able to just roam around all these restaurants where his friends work and just like film them and nobody's faces are blurred and everything. And then, and then Bing's interviewing his mother later on in the film and you see his crew and I'm like, ah, man, he got a grant for this movie. 
he had to have or convinced an investor to give him a crew or something because I mean it, I mean the movie looks really really good being cinematography is tight the actual like scenes where they're just skating where like this movie just turns into a skate video I mean it's it's everything I love about skate videos there's a really 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 cool sequence where they're just like skating around in downtown Rockford which is totally empty another thing I can totally relate with um, from my hometown, the downtown area is just empty. There's like, there's like barely any commerce. Like the only people who are walking the streets are like the people who actually work in the buildings downtown. Like nobody's going to downtown to have a good time unless it's like a parade or something. So there's just skating around an empty downtown Rockford and like, it's just a great montage that ends with somebody breaking a board. It's so good. This movie is so great. It has so much to say about a father's influence on somebody's development be you i mean it really focuses just on a father's influence on their own son and there's a lot of attention paid to nina and how she's also trying to grow up during this time and take care of her baby that keeps growing throughout the movie um and her and zach's issues taking care of this child however she her perspective on the whole why am i fucked up oh it's probably because of my dad she doesn't really have that even though her biological mother and father don't really seem to be in the picture so much they don't really get a whole lot of dwelling upon we're really checking in on nina because we need to know literally what she's doing at a certain point so maybe the documentary could have focused a little more but i don't really feel like i mean the focus of this film is on kier and zach they're the two protagonists in the movie. And Zach's shamelessness combined with Kier's sweetness just makes for this really, really emotional blend of real life, of people who look like they're living in a wasteland trying to just figure it out. And the fact that just because you don't really have a whole lot of money doesn't mean that the things that you're going to need in life get any cheaper for you. So it just means a whole lot more to be able to have the things that you do. It's really great. I love this movie. I think you should watch it to just gain some perspective on the world. That's what the best documentaries are all about. I have a couple other quick thoughts on some movies that were in theaters but then the whole COVID-19 lockdown stuff started happening so their theatrical runs got kind of truncated which meant they were released digitally that you can actually rent you'll have to rent this for money if you want to check these out but I mean you were probably going to go to the theater and see them anyway so you're just doing it from home the first movie is The Hunt this is notable because it was supposed to come out last September, but then there was like some shootings and a lot of conservative types were not happy about the contents of the movie in that a bunch of conservative types wake up and are being hunted for sport by some liberal elites. I, there's a lot of politics in this movie. So it was supposed to come out last year, but it didn't. Donald Trump also weighed in on it too, which, you know, sent a lot of conservative types to wail on it. And Universal Studios, I think it is, they just said, you know what, we're not going to release it. We'll release it later. So they released it here in March. So technically it is a 2020 movie and not a 2019 movie because it never premiered until this year, starring Betty Gilpin and Hilary Swank directed by Craig Zobel. And this is written by Nick Cuse and Damon Lindelof, who wrote 
lost. Damon Lindelof also writes a lot of TV, a lot of HBO TV now. He wrote The Leftovers, and he also wrote the Watchmen HBO series, which I'm watching, and it is awesome. But this is The Hunt. This, okay, I see right through this movie. I do not like this movie at all. This is a really passable action film. The greatest thing about this movie is Betty Gilpin. She finds something in this script that's not that great and just really commits to this this zipped up ex-military person who finds themselves as one of the people being hunted and naturally she has a set of skills that they did not count on and she turns the guns back on the hunters. She's really awesome in this movie. I love her performance in it. However, that's pretty much all I like about this movie. With the exception of some of the action scenes are pretty decent as well. It's just that the politics of this movie get so far in the way of itself that it's just kind of embarrassing to me. This is definitely a bad example of a left-leaning industry like Hollywood trying to get ahead of people's criticisms for them. You hear a lot of conservative talk about liberal Hollywood, left-leaning Hollywood, the liberal elites, the rich people in Southern California. They hate them. They say they pull all the strings, whatever. So this movie decides it wants to hang a lampshade on all of that and say, oh yes, the people who do pull the strings are a bunch of overly PC, super apologetic for themselves and all of their microaggressions. These really rich liberal elites, yes, they do pull all the strings and they kidnap conservatives who say, bad things on Twitter. They fly them out to like Croatia, make it look like Arkansas, and then shoot them all in a game because what else are they going to do with all their money? I just feel like it's really condescending in its viewpoint and kind of cynical in its marketing as well. Hollywood's trying to play a joke on itself. It's trying to be self-aware. It's just super obvious. I just don't love how obvious it is. I'm definitely a liberal person myself, but it's just kind of embarrassing. It's just like similar to how I think a lot of Atheists kind of embarrass themselves where the whole point of their so-called religion, it's not a religion, but you treat atheism as a religion. Anyway, the whole point of their religion is to denounce religion. It's just like, why not just call yourself non-religious? Why do you have to make it a point to be non-religious? It's just as annoying as people who are super religious and they won't stop talking about it because you won't stop talking about how non-religious you are. Like, what's the point of atheists united? What's the point of atheists getting together for their own atheist church? Do they just have to shit talk Buddhism every Tuesday evening at eight? Like, I don't understand atheism in that sense. You could technically call me atheist, but I would never want to label myself as atheist because I just don't think you need to put a label on not being religious. It's just being non-religious. I just feel like the hunt does that with itself. This is a representation of Hollywood because it comes from a major studio. So you know the people who greenlit this in the studio were saying, ooh, this is relevant and the people are going to find it relevant. This is a moment of the times. But it just too often devolves into just a bunch of buzzwords of our time, like snowflake or triggered or whatever conservative Pizzagate conspiracy of the month. Like, it's just a bunch of things that when you hear them, you're supposed to go, haha, I recognize that in real life. But it just doesn't work for me. It doesn't work for me at all. I don't think 
that pitting, I don't think that pitting stereotypes of liberals and stereotypes of conservatives in combat against each other is, is any way to comment on the divides of our nation politically. Not that I think that it's dangerous, I just don't think it says anything or at least anything worthwhile. The reputation of the film does not precede it. It's kind of annoying more than it is prescient, I guess. It doesn't say anything about our current time that you don't already know. So moving on, another film that came out around the same time. This one is called Bloodshot. It's got Vin Diesel in it. It is a comic book adaptation. And I'll be really brief on this one because it was even worse than The Hunt. I would advise against this. This is definitely forgettable blockbuster fare. This is a studio dipping into an obscure comic book title, at least in the mainstream, simply because uh, it's cheap to option and it maybe has just enough genre appeal to launch a franchise. But goodness gracious, there's nothing in this film that I would ever want to franchise. Like the whole nanotechnology, Vin Diesel, he gets shot or like killed and then brought back to life as a super soldier who can regenerate his own wounds due to nano machines and um he kills people i it it's not really interesting yeah the only thing to to franchise is, is his regeneration but it's not framed around anything or it's not put into anything interesting and i really checked out of this movie like maybe halfway through it has one moment where it's really cogent and it's this beginning of the second act there's a twist that's actually pretty good but everything around it, it's not like the movie picks up from there. It just kind of goes back to the same rhythms, and it's just not that great. It's just not that great. The writing is really sparse and limited. Vin Diesel's performance is, it's hard to tell when he's trying. And if I have to watch another movie where major characters are sitting in a control room watching the main character do something, and there's just repeated cutaways to these major characters just standing in a room and talking to screens. I'm just going to turn it off because that's not compelling. You got to have your major characters do something. They need to be doing something. In a movie like Bloodshot, they got to be doing something. And Bloodshot never really gets its feet off the ground, partially because I feel like his visual effects are the only reason why you would want to watch the movie. There's a lot of care put into the visual effects because this movie is directed by a visual effects supervisor guy turned director. The story just has no real attention paid to it. It just doesn't really feel like Dave Wilson, the director, cares about the story. It doesn't really feel like he cares about the characters. He just wants you to see cool nano regeneration technology and some not so bad action scenes. But it's just whatever, man. You don't need to watch this film. It's like as R-rated as it can be while still being PG-13. And I think that kind of takes a lot of the enjoyment out of the action in this film. It really needed somebody's head getting blown apart. Or Vin Diesel getting like a whole circle just like blasted out of his midsection where you can just see right through him and like all of his charred guts and stuff are like dripping down and then you just see that whole thing just like reconstruct itself. Like there is a shout which you've probably seen if you've seen the trailer where he like gets like a shotgun spray to the side of the face and like shoots off like pieces of his face and then like the shot slows down and then it freezes and then the nanobites like reconstruct his face in midair and he just keeps going like it kind of goes there but it doesn't go there it's just pg-13 nonsense and it's not great i don't recommend it at all so between those five films i hope you find something to watch this week and i hope you find a lot of other things to watch this week as well since you're stuck at home so i'm going to leave it at that again my name 
is Alex. Thanks for listening to At The Cinema. I will be back next week with some more movies to talk about. That's all I'm going to do. And I hope you stay safe. I hope your loved ones are safe. And I hope you have a really good day.